This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. It's very good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, I'm having a a good day for some reason. You know, you have those days where you get up and you remember to start the day in more prayer than normal. And this morning I was just asking God to give me a, a, a better perspective on life and the blessings that are there and you know, to just be joyful. And I found myself after that, uh, it was no effort of my own, just smiling for a change, which is, you know, it's not my normal resting face. And uh, I appreciate all the songs this morning, uh, thinking about our someday a mansion robe and crown and the fact that our Lord is our shepherd and that Christ is the lily of the valley and just every song that was sung about, about the role being called up yonder. We have so much to look forward to and be happy about. And uh, I think when we, when we dwell on that, like Brother Shea was saying during his prayer, we begin to realize that if we do count our blessings, if we try to, we find that we don't have the time to do it. We could just spend all of our time thanking the Lord. And so I'm thankful to be here this morning. There's really no place that I would rather be. And uh, we're going to be continuing Revelation and our study of it today. Uh, today, we're starting uh, chapter one, and we're going to be focusing on the first three verses. Don't be alarmed. Sometimes whole lesson will be on a few verses, sometimes it may be on a few chapters, but today it's going to be the first three verses if you'd like to turn there to be able to reference that. Uh, let's start by reading verse 1 of chapter 1 of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel and unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. You used to always be amazed by preachers who could take three apparently boring verses like this and turn it into a whole lesson. When I found out they were going to do that, I was like, oh, here we go. Um, I promise I'm going to do my best not to do that this morning. These verses have a wealth of information in them that I think, uh, number one, they set the stage for the entire book. So we're going to draw what we can out of there, and I hope you find it uh, edifying. So the first thing I want to point out is that it is Jesus Christ who is doing the revealing. If I can get my uh, clicker to work here. There we go. Jesus Christ is doing the revealing. Now, if you have certain versions of the Bible, uh, you might see the book titled as the Revelation of St. John the Divine. That's very common. However, these titles were not in the original New Testament Greek manuscripts. The actual title of the book is given in the verse we just read. It is the very first words of verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. From this, a fundamental point is drawn, that being that Christ himself is the author of this book. Now, you may remember me saying that some of the reformers, like Luther in particular, detested Revelation, said it shouldn't be in the Bible, and his primary reason was that it did not point to Christ. I don't know how you can draw that conclusion if you read the very first verse 
of this book. This is Jesus Christ doing the speaking through John. It is his unveiling of the future. Now, the people of Jesus' day referred to him as a prophet many times, and he took the title upon himself as well. You can see that in Matthew 21, verse 11, Luke 7, 16, John 4, 19, Mark 6, verse 4. Both Peter and Stephen spoke of Jesus as being the ultimate fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Jesus is the prophet, like Moses, who we were told must be listened to in Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 23 chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, and in verses 51 through 53. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we read, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So the first thing to understand when approaching a study of the book of Revelation is that it is the words of Jesus. It is his prophecy. It is his revelation of future things. It is from his very mouth. The second thing that one must note is that Jesus received this revelation from God the Father. God gave it to Christ. John chapter 5 verse 19 says, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these things doeth the Son likewise. The ultimate authority of the Bible is and has always been God the Father. Jesus says, my Father is greater than I, in John chapter 14, verse 28. So there's a chain of custody here that's important because it maintains the hierarchy of the Trinity and it affirms Jesus' own declaration in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, but that says, but of that day and hour, Knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, Scripture outside of Revelation tells us that Jesus submits to the Father and that the Father has special knowledge. Had this short line in, in Revelation uh, verse 1 about uh, the Father's special knowledge, had it not been included, it is very likely that this entire book would not have been considered inspired. You may remember our discussion from Wednesday about how the canon of Scripture was deemed authentic. It would have been in conflict with the other ideas in Scripture if it hadn't been made clear that this particular knowledge about the end times, it is reserved only for God the Father, and Jesus had to request it of Him. But as it is, the integrity of the Bible as a whole is maintained. The knowledge in this book belonged to God and it was given to Christ so that he could show it to the church. Now this book reveals a pre-existing plan. It's not just a book. The, book. the Bible is the inerrant word of God. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. When you read word, substitute Jesus for that. That's why word is capitalized in many versions of the Bible because it is a name for Jesus. And we understand from this that the word of God was not written in reaction to the world but superseded it. Before the creation of the universe and all that is in it, the word of God existed. Before Satan rebelled, the word of God existed in its complete form in the person of Jesus Christ. Before the fall of man, the word of God foreknew the introduction of sin into mankind's lives, and he planned for it. 
before King David took the throne of Israel and foreshadowed Christ himself, the word of God declared it would be so. Before Jesus came, the plan already existed for him to do so. For all the way back to the very beginning, the word existed completely. It was not developing. It was not quick on its feet and ready to adapt to the unexpected wiles of the world. No, it was. The word was, it it means I exist, am, or was. So it's very important to understand that when John tells us this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the same that was since the beginning of time, what is actually being revealed is that mystery of God that is referred to in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, where we read, Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, that is God's will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. This is not a new revelation that is reacting to the consequences of sin, but rather this is the predetermined plan that is finally in God's own good time being revealed to the church through Christ according to his good pleasure. It's a glimpse into what was always going to take place, but was heretofore unknown because God had not yet revealed it. So who is this book written for? Well, this book is written specifically for the church. Christ's servants refers to the church. This book was specifically given to the church because Jesus wanted to give it to his bride, the church. Before the bridegroom came, we'll read later when we progress through Revelation, we will see that there was no one worthy to make this request of God. Think of this book as a wedding gift from Christ to us. If we didn't have this gift from Him, we would have to live in apprehension and fear and not know what's coming and constantly be agonizing over it perhaps. But we don't have to do that now because we have this great gift that Jesus Christ went and asked the Father for and gave to you and I. Now there's more important uh, information to glean from the first three verses of the first chapter of Revelation than one might initially expect, but there is one that has greater impact than the others to modern readers, and that is the words, things which must shortly come to pass, and the time is at hand. People who read the book of Revelation are oftentimes confused by the use of the words soon and at hand or near. The problem for some is that these verses were written over 19 centuries ago. And while some believe all things in this book are basically fulfilled in history, there are others who claim they are yet future. The question is, how can something that was shortly to come to pass still be unfulfilled nearly 2,000 years later? There are a total of eight time texts in the book of Revelation. And taking these verses into account... Certain preterist and historicist scholars have said the following. Failing to recognize the proximity of a a prophetic event will distort its intended meaning. There is no getting around this language that most of the verses that many believe are yet to be fulfilled already have been fulfilled. Now, you'll remember in a previous study, the first one that I gave Uh, I pointed out that these time statements are a type of literary device known as an ellipsis or a parenthesis 
which functions to inform the readers that the issue of the nearness of the Lord's return uh, being imminent is intrinsic to the book's main theme. Preterists and historicists are correct when they teach that words like soon and at hand frequently convey the idea of temporal nearness. That is to say, something's going to come to pass in a relatively short amount of time on this earth. But some say that the preterist and historicist apply this reality a little too rigidly. It's true that the first few chapters of Revelation address real historical churches and events that were connected with their day. But does the relevance of these verses end with those historical churches, all of which no longer exist today? I do not believe this is entirely true. Nevertheless, there are scholars like B.W. Johnson who have said the following. Too many have failed to study Revelation in the light of history. John says that the things referred to were shortly to come to pass. They were future when he wrote prophecy then. They are nearly all in the past history now. The book of prophecy must be held in one hand and the book of history in the other, he says. Too many would-be interpreters have been shamefully ignorant of the history of the church and of the perils of the church from its political or spiritual foes, end quote. So what's the problem with this approach? Well, despite the fact that these claims about history are fascinating and sometimes plausible, they are by no means certain, and we must be humble about what we do not know. Some of you may remember the Bible teacher P.C. Key from the 50s. When addressing the first seal of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, and the identity of the white horse, Key states that the white horse symbolizes widespread uh, social tranquility and prosperity, be beginning with the Roman emperor Nerva and Trahan, which favored the spread of Christianity. That's a view that virtually all historicists hold to. And historically, it is absolutely unequivocally true that during that period of time, conditions were ideal for the spread of Christianity. Meanwhile, going back to B.W. Johnson, he's largely in agreement with Key, and he addresses the question of the bow held by the white rider and concedes that the presence of this bow has no easy explanation. He points out that this bow is one of the ways we know the writer was not Christ. This is a point of confusion for some. Uh, let me just clarify that there are, there's a very detailed study that I, I believe provides uh, undeniable proof. This white writer pictured up here in the middle is not Christ. Christ is never said to carry a bow. That's what B.W. Johnson is going to focus on. And he says that Romans didn't use bows primarily either. Well, who used bows then? Well, during the time of the Roman Empire, Cretans were the famous archers of the world. And in Grecian history, the bowmen of their armies were Cretans from the island of Crete. Therefore, Johnson assumes that a bow might signify someone connected with Crete. Now listen to how Johnson ties all of this together. And just so you know, I consider this to be a relatively good historicist argument. The bow was not a Roman weapon, and though there were bowmen in their armies, they were not native Romans. If a Roman soldier was symbolized, he would not be represented as armed with a bow. This is true. 
They used short swords and javelins. So this weapon indicates that we must look elsewhere for its fulfillment. Johnson points to what he calls a remarkable historical fact illustrated by this bow. Beginning with Julius Caesar, there were 12 Caesars. And they ruled the empire in succession, and they were all of pure Roman blood. Domitian, the last of the 12 Caesars, the persecutor of John, was of the Roman stock, but he was the last emperor of an old Roman family that ruled for ages. Now, he was succeeded by Nerva. And Nerva was almost paternal in his kindness and magnanimity compared to the cruel Nero and Domitian who preceded him. And Nerva was the founder of a family that furnished no less than five Caesars in succession. You had Trahan, Adrian, Antoninus, and Aurelius. Nerva was the first emperor of this new family, but he was not of Roman blood. Dion Cassius was a historian of that age, and he states that he was of Greek descent. And another Roman historian, Aurelius Victor, says that his family came from the Greek island of Crete. Now, since the national weapon of the Cretans was the bow, and since they were famous as, bow, as bowmen in all ancient armies, you can see a, a relief of them on the right up there. Johnson states that it's not possible to have reasonable doubt concerning this matter. Johnson declares the first seal is of the utmost importance to a correct interpretation of what follows, that its true meaning should be learned, meaning he's right in this assumption here. And he says a mistake at this point will be fatal. Fatal? Those are very strong words to apply to one's interpretation of prophecy, isn't it? Now let me clearly state that while the case put forward by both Key and Johnson is certainly interesting, possible, and it seems to fit as framed, it is also not certain. Furthermore, let me remind you that our first study about prophecy and the fact that we established there is that sometimes a, prophet, a prophecy can have multiple fulfillments. The reason I led with that study is that I believe we must leave room for the idea that there can be an historical fulfillment of prophecy and that, that uh, prophecy can accurately apply to the then seven existing churches of Asia Minor, but it can also leave room for a future application that would benefit the church as a whole until the return of Christ. Remember that the fulfilled Old Testament prophecy that we have as a reference does exactly that. There were oftentimes prophecies that saw an immediate fulfillment for the nation of Israel, which also later in the future had an equally true fulfillment in Christ as it relates to the church. And that fulfillment wouldn't be established until centuries after the first one. And yet both fulfillments were true. This is how the integrity of God's word matched up. He was able to verify the authenticity of the prophet to the initial hearers by having a near fulfillment. And that would justify belief in the future fulfillment as well. Now when one takes that fact into account, the wise thing to do would be to admit that we cannot be dogmatic in ruling out alternative views as it refers to the possible fulfillment of prophecy. We can draw well-supported conclusions, and we should. But saying that a divergent view is fatal, well, that's simple hubris, in my opinion. So what does soon mean? Let's go back to those time texts. I want to address the meaning of the words we see there just a bit further. 
There's a phrase there, must shortly come to pass. Now, that means a brief space of time or in haste, quickly, shortly, speedily. This word, together with several cognate forms, expresses various shades of meaning. One form of this word is takyu, and it can carry the idea of swiftly or quickly. Jesus once admonished his disciples to agree with your adversary quickly. In Matthew 5, verse 25, at the Lord's empty tomb, an angel instructed the women who had arrived on that Sunday morning to go quickly and tell his disciples. Matthew 28, verse 8. Tachyon expresses a degree or level of tachyon, that previous term. You can see this word used in outrun, found in John chapter 20, verse 4, to depict the fact that John arrived at the empty tomb more quickly than did the slower Peter. And then there's a similar form of the word, tachyos, which is present in several forms. When a certain ruler prepared a great feast, he invited many to attend, but they rejected his gracious invitation, so he dispatched a servant to go quickly or immediately and invite the less well-to-do. That's Luke 14, verse 21. When Paul wrote the letter 1 Corinthians, he promised those saints that if it was the Lord's will, he would come and visit them shortly, 1 Corinthians 4, 19. With reference to guiding men, into the work of serving his elders, Paul cautioned Timothy, lay hands suddenly upon no man. 1 Timothy 5, verse 22. And then there are the combined terms, entake, which carries the idea of in or with speed, to do something with the idea of speed in mind. When an angel appeared to Peter in a Jerusalem cell, he urged the apostle to arise up quickly in preparation for deliverance. That's Acts 12, verse 7. Jesus promised his persecuted disciples that their enemies would be dealt with speedily, Luke 18, verse 8. Paul prophesied that God would crush Satan under the saints' feet shortly in Romans 16, verse 20. And in Romans 16, verse 20, we see the same use of the expression as we find in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. So here's some contextual considerations. Words can take on special meanings depending upon the nature of the immediate context or depending upon the type of literature in which they're used. For example, in context dealing with prophecy, the time factor becomes quite elastic. Some prophecies are framed in language that makes it appear as if the events were accomplished already in order to emphasize the certainty of God's plan. You can see an example of that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What, then, is the significance of the term shortly in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The phrase, must shortly come to pass, can be taken to mean a few slightly different things. It could mean it will commence shortly. The phrase may suggest that the events being revealed were to commence soon, shortly. There would then be a historical progression, <coughs> excuse me, spanning many centuries, being finally consummated by the Lord's second coming. Or it could mean certainly or suddenly, Leon Morris, Morris has noted, we must bear in mind that in the prophetic perspective, the future is sometimes foreshortened. In other words, the word may refer primarily to the certainty of the events in question. The Lord God has determined them and he will speedily bring them to pass, but speedily has a reference to his time and not ours. Morris suggests that the meaning may also be suddenly. The meaning then would be that when the appointed time arrives, the events will occur without delay. 
It can also mean at any time. <clears throat> Robert Mounts contended that the phrase likely means that from the prophetic vantage point, the end is always imminent. Time as a chronological sequence is of secondary concern in prophecy. Now, I tend to agree with scholars who say that the primary meaning of this word refers to the speed by which an event approaches rather than the duration of time before it arrives. What difference does it make? The difference is that quickly should be taken to mean that the event is approaching rapidly without any limitation upon the time frame in which it must occur. Regardless of how long it takes, we should not see some sort of idleness on God's part. After all, God did not say these were things which must come to pass in 300 years. He didn't say that. Instead, he said these things would come on with great speed and suddenly, just like a speeding driver comes upon and passes you when you're kind of oblivious, staring on the road, following the speed of them, and all of a sudden, whoosh, and you're scared because you didn't see them coming. It just passes you by that quickly. Look at the, I want to show you three verses where the Greek word tacos is used. Acts 25, verse 4, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, and Romans 16, verse 20. Now, in the first two verses, we see the word applied, and it's the same word in Revelation 1, verse 1. We see the word applied to human action. In human context, quickly, shortly, and soon, all imply that a relatively short span of time is expected to pass. But in the last verse, Romans 16, verse 20, as I said, we find a use similar to Romans, uh, Revelation 1, verse 1, in that it refer, uh, references an action of God alone. Here again, one might be better to use the word quickly instead of soon or shortly. And the reason I say that is because the word translated bruise here means to crush completely, to break into pieces. This is not the exact same meaning as what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God, speaking to the serpent or Satan, says, He, meaning Christ, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Hebrew word for bruise there means to overwhelm. We know that Christ overthrew Satan at the cross by overwhelming him completely. But in Romans 16, verse 20, the idea is not only different in that it speaks of the utter destruction of Satan, but it is said after the salvific work of Christ is complete. Now, when Paul says, God shall break Satan under your feet shortly, he clearly isn't talking about Christ's salvific work on the cross like in Genesis 3.15 because that had already happened. Therefore, what it has to be referencing is that future time when the already defeated Satan shall have his sentence imposed. You see, the sentence against Satan has already been declared, just like in our court of law, by God. But he's still loose in the world. It's like he's out on bond or bail or something. One day, Satan will have that sentence imposed by God, and he will be cast into the bottomless pit, disabused of his semblance of power forever. That's what Romans 16.20 is talking about. He will be utterly and completely destroyed. That has not happened yet. Yet Paul said centuries ago that God would do it shortly, just as John said the prophecies of Revelation would shortly take pass. So what are we to make of that statement then? 
Is it meaningless to us? Is the book of Revelation somehow compromised if it goes beyond the time of the Roman Empire, as some say? Nothing could be further from the truth. The example of Revelation 16 verse 20 actually confirms the view that this Greek word for quickly, when applied to God's actions alone, should not be used to imply a short time frame by any human standard. 2 Peter 3 verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. This verse tells us it is entirely plausible to conclude that not all prophecy in Revelation has been fulfilled, even if we see potential fulfillment in certain historic events. And number two, God is executing His plans to fulfill that prophecy quickly, no matter how long it takes. The time is also referenced in Revelation 1 verse 3. And in my opinion, that time text makes the case even stronger. Because the word used for time there is the Greek word kairos, which is an occasion, a set or proper time, due season. Now what's implied here isn't the amount of elapsed time on a clock or a calendar. But it is instead understood to be the appropriate time. The emphasis is on the appropriateness of the time rather than the shortness of the time. In other words, the time for these things to happen was appropriate when John wrote Revelation, and it is just as appropriate now. A good question to ask ourselves in verse 3 is, did John say the time is near because he knew when the fulfillment was going to happen? Well, we know he did not because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Acts 1, verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Incidentally, this makes perfect sense of the fact that Revelation reveals signs and seasons through prophecy. It's given unto us to be able to see signs of the times, not the day and the hour. So if John didn't know when these things would happen, what did he mean when he said the time is at hand? There's only one thing it can mean. And that is that the fulfillment of these things is imminent. Look at it this way. California has been living under imminent threat of the big one for decades. <clears throat> this earthquake will be catastrophic, we're told. And for decades, the warning has been it could be at any minute. It hasn't happened yet, but that doesn't mean the original prediction was wrong. And it also doesn't mean that we somehow missed the big one, that it already happened. It hasn't happened yet. Even if there have been other lesser earthquakes that seemed to fit the bill in retrospect, the big one won't be something anyone misses. Some scientists actually believe it'll crack part of the state of California off into the Pacific Ocean and make an island. You're not going to miss that. It hasn't happened yet. It is the same with Revelation. The key thing that makes an event imminent is that as far as we know, it's ready to happen, but its timing is unknown. This agrees exactly with the way Jesus described his return in the end times. Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. 
But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch, and pray. For ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore. For ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even, or at midnight, or at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Jesus is telling us to be alert and to watch precisely because we don't know when he will return. Look at verse 35. It could be in the evening. It could be at midnight. It could be when the rooster crows. It could be in the morning. This is a figurative way of saying that we must allow for the widest possible range of time for his return to occur. Get this point. We are to live expectantly, not presumptuously. Now, one of the common arguments you're going to hear from a historicist or a preterist is going to be, and they disagree with everything I've said just a moment ago, they'll say, well, you know, Revelation is an unsealed book. Well, let's talk about that. I want to compare Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, which also gives much of the details of the end times and is uh, reflected very almost precisely in Revelation. Daniel 12, verse 4, and Revelation 22, verse 10. The Daniel passage. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the end of time. Why? Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. But then he says to John in Revelation 22, verse 10, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now I want you to notice a few things here. In Daniel's case, he was told to seal up the book until the end of time, because there were still more things that had to be accomplished and revealed before the end time events could occur. The many is referring to further prophets, Jesus, and eventually the apostles themselves. These people had to come in order to further increase our knowledge, and therefore the fulfillment of these prophecies was not imminent in Daniel's time. But then we're talking about the same thing, and we go to John in Revelation. In John's case, he's told, don't seal up the words because now the time is near. Unlike Daniel, there is no further revealing that must occur before the events spoken of may begin. So there will be no more prophets. The knowledge that we have is wrapped up and completed in Revelation. Everything is now sufficient for the end times to occur. As a result, it can be properly said that the fulfillment of the prophecies that John gives us is imminent. Imminent. It does not imply that there is an amount of time that must not be exceeded, but it implies that the stage is set, the time of these things is now near, and that's different from the situation when Daniel prophesied about those same things. I want you to notice too that looking at the end of Revelation 1 verse 1, it was delivered and signified by an angel. Who was this angel? Well, to answer that, we need to understand what an angel in the Bible is. <clears throat> the word in Greek is angelos. It means a messenger and an angel. The trouble with the word angel is that it refers to more than one being. Not every reference to angel in the Bible is speaking about one of the heavenly hosts. The word angel actually means messenger. 
because that is an angel's primary purpose, the two overlap. They, an angel, are about the business of delivering the messages and will of God. So sometimes an angel is merely a messenger, could be a human. While at other times, it is an actual angel of God, who is also a messenger, but is of a different type of being altogether. There's an entire field of theology known as angelology, and perhaps someday we can delve into that study, but for this morning, I'm going to keep it very succinct and brief. It's my belief that the angel of Revelation 1 verse 1 is an actual angel of heaven because we're told that this angel was sent by Jesus to deliver revelation and signify it. The angel was the interpreter. He signified or interpreted what God was saying to John. The reason I believe this was an actual angel is because revelation came straight from heaven to John to illuminate the church. And he didn't understand what he was seeing a lot of times. You can see that in the fact that the angel explains certain things to him as we go along. There was no man who could do that. And John was meant to be the man who was going to unseal the gap in our knowledge. It makes no sense that a second man would be involved as they would then be the revelator and not John. Notice also that John is identified as one of the servants of Christ. Now, I think this is important because it underscores the fact that God is not a respecter of persons. Let me explain that. John was not especially different from you and I in his station, apart from the fact that he was an apostle. He was the instrument God chose to deliver inspired scripture, which makes him unique in his use. But in the end, he was also a member of the church as we are. We are all members of the same body of which Christ is the head. John wasn't a supernatural person as he recorded Christ's revelation. He was a human being exemplifying what God will do in our lives should we submit to him and devote our lives to his purpose. My point is that John, he was not supernaturally capable of something that is beyond you and I or anyone in the church. Now granted, you and I can't be apostles. I'm not saying that. But the difference is that John actually devoted his life and his will to Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 21, verses 15 through 24. Here, we find Jesus asking Peter three times if he loved him, after Peter denied Christ three times. Peter, being something of a zealot by nature, didn't want to believe he would betray Christ in his hour of need, but Christ said he would, and so he did. When the reality of this hit Peter, he was crushed. And it might have destroyed him. We have an account of him wandering off to return to fishing. And the other disciples, unfortunately, were going to follow him because Peter was sort of the informal leader of that group. If Christ hadn't come and had this exchange with him, Peter might have lost his focus. But Peter was refocused on Christ through this exercise. And Jesus told him that despite his fiery independence, one day... Peter would have that independence stripped away from him by others, and we know that he would later be crucified upside down according to to, uh, preserved tradition. Peter seemed to accept this for himself, that he was going to die, but then he looked back and he saw John following them. And perhaps Peter had some indignation in his heart when he saw John. Perhaps there was some jealousy. Perhaps he was just curious. But whatever it was, he said this to Jesus, I understand that I'm going to be called to suffer, but what about John? He'll suffer too, right? How will John suffer? 
What hard thing will this disciple whom you love have to endure? I can just hear it now. Isn't that so like us humans? What Jesus said is interesting because his verdict was that John would live. Jesus went so far as to say, what if I kept John alive until my second coming even? What if I do that, Peter? What is it to you? Jesus asserted his authority and he put Peter into his place. Because of the way Jesus responded, I'm inclined to believe that Peter's tone was suggesting that he felt that if he was called to die, then John better be called to die as well in order to be fair. Apparently, based on verse 23, the other brethren mistakenly took Jesus literally and then they began to spread whispers among themselves, John's going to be immortal. And John had to correct them. Now we know that eventually John did die, but he was the last of the apostles to die. And as we stated in our last study, John was the only apostle to live into advanced old age. And apparently, it was for the express purpose of delivering revelation to us. Isn't that wonderful? God has everything in hand. Even when we doubt it like Peter did, God's got it in hand. Now, John had a different calling in his life than Peter did, and it was different than the calling that you and I have. But what I want you to remember is that John was a servant of Christ, a member of the church, just as you and I are. And remember, we find in Revelation 1 verse 1 that he was a servant, like as we are. And it reminds us of what God can do and will do through his faithful servants. The last little section we're looking at this morning is in verse 3, and it promises a blessing, but it also gives a prescription for how to handle revelation. This is very important. I hope you'll tune into it. We are to read it for ourselves and engage in personal study and not rely solely on the commentary of other men. I believe this is a problem when studying revelation. Too often, our body of knowledge is based solely on the books and words of other men and not on the Bible itself. We don't always do careful reading, prayer, and teaching that comes from the Holy Spirit. Remember 1 John 2, verse 27? But the anointing which ye have received of Him, that is the Holy Spirit, abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you... <clears throat> But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even it, as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. This book is not too hard for any of us to understand. Don't underestimate our teacher, the Holy Spirit. Read it for yourself. <clears throat> but it's also not wrong to sit under the teaching of other learned men of God either. For Revelation 1 verse 3 also tells us to hear. We're to come together as God's people and hear the word of God read and explained to us just as we find of Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> By this time, the word of God had pretty much been lost. People didn't even know Hebrew really anymore. So they all gathered together and the scripture was read to them and explained to them. They sat under the teaching of learned, God-led men. There's an opposite extreme to never reading the Bible for yourself, and that is never listening to the teaching and preaching of others. You can become convinced in your own knowledge and wisdom, and you can be wrong. We need both. 
Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 2, and he gained some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The clear implication of this verse is that without preachers and teachers, the saints will be lacking in some way. Thanks to the Holy Spirit, we have at our disposal great teachers and preachers for the purpose of perfecting the saints. And finally, Revelation 1 verse 3 tells us to keep the words of this prophecy. Now this word keep uh, means to detain in custody, to maintain, to withhold for personal ends, to hold fast, preserve, and watch. There's one thing in life you can be jealous and selfish about uh, as it pertains to your own use, and that is a scripture. That word actually means to maintain it for your, for your own personal ends. Obviously, we're to share it with others, but we are to keep it close. You may have heard it said that we are to keep or obey this prophecy, and of course, we are to obey all scripture. But the full meaning of this word is captured in this idea. Take this prophecy and lock it away in your hearts. Keep it in your custody and maintain it as something of great value. Use it for your personal gain and hold fast to it. Have you done that with this book? Is Revelation meaningful enough to you that you would clutch it to your breast to prevent it being taken away from you in both a physical and spiritual sense? I must confess that it was rather the opposite with me for many years, uh, precisely because I didn't always understand Revelation and I got tired of the debate surrounding it. To this day, I do not like the acrimony that surrounds this book within the church to this day. And in the past, I would let this prevent me from reading it, hearing it, and keeping it to the benefit of the church. But that would be in direct contradiction of the guidance I've been given in Revelation 1 verse 3. We have reached a time in history where we must move away from this nonsense where the Bible sits on the shelf collecting dust and if we pick it up, the one book we don't turn to is Revelation. That cannot continue. It is extraordinarily important as you will see as we go through by the time we reach the end of this study, we will have touched on virtually every book of the Bible. It marries the whole thing together. If you don't care about Revelation, you don't care about making final and complete sense of everything else. And you may not be thinking I don't care, but that's the end result. Revelation is so important. And in Revelation 1 verse 3, we are told, read, hear, and keep it. It's only been in recent years that I understood this verse more fully. Um, <clears throat> there is a cycle here that we are expected to keep. We read the book for ourselves, we seek out teaching on this book that we can hear, and then we keep that process going by teaching it ourselves. We are to equip future generations of the church by teaching them to hear, or to, to read, to hear, and to keep it. That's why I'm teaching through this book now. I'm attempting to read, hear, and keep this book. If you think I enjoy the commentary I receive for my controversial views, you would be wrong. I don't like the fact that every time somebody, usually not in our congregation, hears I'm talking about Revelation, that they go into attack mode. I don't like that. And it's easy, it would be easy for me to just not talk on it at all. But I can't do that. And you know what? The Bible tells me that I am blessed when I do this, and so too 
will you be if you read, hear, and keep this book? Do this because as verse 3's final words tells us, for the time is at hand. It is imminent. I hope this uh, study has been beneficial to you this morning. Um, there's so much here that sometimes I struggle to keep it within a reasonable time frame, and I thank you for bearing with me. These lessons are longer than I would prefer for them to be, but sometimes there are just too many things that need to be said. Um, if you are here today and you have not been baptized, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, please, please understand, the end is imminent. Christ's return is imminent. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. And if he came today, in the next minute, do you want to say to him, I was never baptized because I needed to talk to somebody about it first, because I was embarrassed and I preferred a Wednesday night. I didn't want people to see me doing this. Do you really want to try to make that case to God? Don't let that happen to you. There's no better time. If you need to be baptized, do it now. And if you have been and you're a member of this church and Christ church and you find yourself losing your joy, slipping into sin, falling into bondage of sin again, understand two things. One, that is our human fallen condition. You are not abnormal. That happens to us all. But we are told to confess our faults to one another, to pray for one another, and then we're promised that the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Let us pray for you, not because we want to hear your dirty laundry, not because we want to judge you, but because we want to enter into our mansion, receive our robe and our crown together someday. And... Uh, I just want everybody to be there, as many people as possible. So let us pray for you. If there be one of either case, we ask you to step forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.